Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 17th, 2014. All right, today's program unfortunately has the um, super high potential to be controversial. Disclaimer at the front I am not being controversial for the sake of controversy. The reason why this program will be controversial is for the sake of the truth and the biblical standards that exist regarding the office of the pastoral ministry. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because there's no shortage of crazy things being said and done. We slow down, stop, open up our Bible, and compare. Now, the big story today is the Mark Driscoll apology. This broke on Friday, late on Friday. Uh, there was a letter that went out from uh, from Mark Driscoll, kind of an in-house email that got leaked onto the internet and everybody's talking about it. And some people see it as an apology, as true repentance. Other people, well, like myself, um, believe that the devil's in the details and we need to slow down and take a, co- a really close look at what's in this letter What exactly is Driscoll apologizing for? What exactly is he repenting of? What has been omitted? And we're going to begin, actually not there, but we're going to begin by taking a a little biblical survey, if you would, of the concept of repentance. We'll take a look at the biblical standards regarding the office of the pastoral ministry, and then we'll get into this. So today's program is going to be kind of dedicated, at least the first hour, dedicated to the Driscoll apology slash repentance to see if what we're really dealing with is real repentance on the part of Mark Driscoll. Now, I'll be I'll be blunt. Um, I'm of the opinion that we are not seeing true repentance. If we are seeing repentance, it's partial. That's about the best construction that I can put on it. Um, And what hasn't been repented of, what hasn't been apologized for, um, is uh, very disturbing. Um, His explanation for some things he's done in the past is that you kind of have to fill in the blanks as to what exactly he's talking about. Um, That's disturbing. And uh, and then, of course, there's other issues that uh, we're going to have to raise along the way. So what I recommend you do is get a Bible Put your thinking caps on, and again, keep this in mind. This is not controversy for the sake of controversy. This is, this is controversial because these questions need to be asked regarding 
the truth. That's really what it comes down to. So we're going to just we're going to get right into it. And uh, we're going to start by taking a, a close look at biblical passages that talk about repentance. What is repentance? Metanoia. It means to change your mind. But uh, what exactly does repentance mean? And uh, to kind of begin with, um, the uh, Lutheran confessions summarize the biblical teaching regarding repentance. And uh, this is uh, from uh, Luther's small called uh, articles. And uh, here's what he talks about when, you know, in summarizing the biblical teaching regarding repentance. We'll get into our Bible and we'll go from there. Uh, Luther writes, he says, the office of the law, uh, the New Testament retains and urges, you know, the office of you know, God's law that, that screams at us and tells us we're sinful. As uh, St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 does, saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is you know, what the law does. And again, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, all the world is guilty before God. No man is righteous before God. And Christ says in John 16, 8, the Holy Ghost the Spirit, will reprove the world or convict the world of sin. So this then is the thunderbolt of God by which he strikes in a heap, hurls to the ground, both manifest sinners and false saints, otherwise known as hypocrites, and suffers no one to be in the right. It declares no one to be righteous, but drives them all together to terror and despair. This is the hammer, as Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine says, um, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. This is not... Uh, this is not activa contritio or manufactured repentance, but passive, passiva contritio or the torture of the conscience, true sorrow of heart, suffering in the sensation of death. So the idea here is, is that if we're going to talk about repentance, this is not something manufactured. True repentance is that passive torture of the conscience through the thunderbolts of God's law, which causes the heart to feel the wrath of God. So this then is what it means to begin true repentance. And here man must hear such a sentence as this. You are all of no account, whether you be manifest sinners or saints in your own opinion. All You all must become different and do otherwise than you now are and are doing, no matter what sort of people you are, whether you are as great, wise, and powerful, and holy as you may be, here no one is righteous or godly, etc. But to this office, the office of the law, the New Testament immediately adds the conciliatory promise of grace through the gospel, which must be believed, as Christ declares in Mark one fifteen, repent, and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Become different. Do otherwise and believe my promise. And John preceding him, this is John the Baptist preceding Christ, is called a preacher of repentance. However, for the remission of sins, John was to accuse all and convict them of being sinners that they might know what they were before God and might acknowledge that they were lost men and might thus be prepared for the Lord to receive grace and to expect and accept from him the remission of their sins. Thus also Christ himself says in Luke twenty four forty seven that repentance and the remission of sins must be preached in his name or my name to all nations. In other words, repentance is the terror that comes through God's law, through the, you know, th- that accuses us of our sin, feeling God's wrath and being sorry for it. The gospel comes and forgives us and comforts our consciences. And then the sinner being set free from sin, death, and the devil 
begins to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's kind of the overarching idea that we're going to be working with here as we talk about the issue or the, you know, the topic of repentance when it comes to Mark Driscoll. Now, let me give you some more biblical texts here. So uh, Luther here cited you know, John the Baptist as the preacher of repentance. Let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke and take a close look at the preacher of repentance. This is the, John the Baptist is famous for this. And, you know, you hear the voice crying in the wilderness, Repent! Repent! Right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? So let's hear what the preacher of repentance has to say. Luke chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. Luke writes, he says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall uh, become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now listen to this politically incorrect message. Are you ready? Here's John's message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Yeah, that that wouldn't fly in most megachurches today, now would it? So we continue. Verse 10. So the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? Now notice, in hearing this message of God's law, preached in all of its unbridled fury against them and their sins, right? They're cut to the quick by the Spirit, and here's this passive contrition, this passive terror, right? And they ask, What shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Okay, so here's this idea. With repentance comes the fruit of repentance, where you've felt the terror of God's law convicting you of your sin, and you hear of the forgiveness of sins. And keep in mind, these people not only heard his message of the law railing against them, saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the fires to come, and saying that the, the axe is laid to the root, and everything that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be thrown into the fire— What's their response to this? They're repenting, they're being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and then they're asking, what shall we do? And here's the bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Whoever has two tunics is to share, whoever has food is to share likewise. Tax collectors, 
Don't take more than you're supposed to. Collect no more than you're authorized. Soldiers don't extort from people. So there's a bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the idea. Let me give you another cross-reference. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. We're going to read the story of Zacchaeus. Okay, So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus uh, was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled and said, Ah, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So here we have another biblical picture from the Gospels of repentance. Repentance produces fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit here of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is that he's giving half of his possessions to the poor and he's restoring fourfold any any amount of money that he's defrauded from another. This is true repentance. Okay? That's another biblical picture. Let me give you the ultimate biblical picture. The ultimate biblical picture comes from the story of David, from the, uh, from the book of uh, 2 Samuel. I'll start at chapter 11. We're going to work through this entire text and take a look at what repentance looks like in Scripture. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to do battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent to David and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my wife? 
uh, to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives. I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch and with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So where we're at in the story, David has committed adultery. He hasn't confessed his sin. He hasn't repented of his sin. He's trying to concoct a way to hide his sin. Basically, make it so that uh, it'll go away like it never happened. That's the idea. And this will lead to a compounding of his sin. We continue reading. Verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Yeah, so he murdered him by the hands of the Hittites. All looks good. He's going to get away with it, right? Well, we continue. So then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerobasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall that you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also? So if the king complains, just, oh, yeah, let him know, oh, yeah, Uriah is dead. And isn't that horrible? Uriah literally had to carry his own death warrant and didn't even know what was going on. His wife's pregnant by the hand of the king he's loyal to, and I mean ridiculously loyal to. And, you know, the king's trying to get him to sleep with his wife, and then, you know, hopefully the baby will come and he won't be able to put the math together. It might seem a little early, but hey, you know, nine months is, you know, you know eight and a half, and yeah, that's good enough, right? He doesn't sleep with his wife. So David has him carry his own death warrant, and now he's murdered by the hand of the Hittites. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent and, uh, sent to tell him. And the messenger said to David, "The man gained an advantage over us, and uh, the men gained an advantage over us, and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate, and then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also." So David said to the messenger, "Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him." When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Adultery and murder. And now the way it's gone down, David looks like, what what a great guy. I mean, look at this. He's marrying a war hero's widow. Isn't that just great? 
Yeah, but he hasn't pulled any of the wool over the Lord's eyes. So Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Listen to David's response. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore. Listen to that. David has a sense of justice here. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing, he deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David pronounces the judgment. Included in the judgment against this man, who he doesn't even know is him, is the idea of restitution, right? So Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. If this were too little, I would I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised? Who did he despise? Now listen carefully, okay? Now technically David despised Bathsheba because he totally took advantage of her. David utterly despised Uriah the Hittite because he had him murdered. But who really was it that David was despising? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up a evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Now you're thinking, whoa, 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 is there not mercy? Yeah, there is. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, you have. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did this thing, you shall utterly be scorned you, and have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Okay. Was there mercy and forgiveness? Yes, there was. Is David a man after God's own heart? Yes, he is. Was there forgiveness for David the sinner? You bet there was. But all of this was to bring him to repentance. This this event with Nathan the prophet was to bring him to repentance so that he could hear the forgiveness of his sins, but there were also temporal consequences that go with it, right? Now, from there... What happens? David writes Psalm 51. No sooner is Nathan out of the palace that David takes pen to parchment and he begins to write. 
And here's what he writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me and against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. Hmm? So, here's the question that is before us. We're going to be taking a break shortly, and we're going to be asking, the que- we're going to be asking some tough questions. Has Mark Driscoll really repented? Is there true contrition and sorrow over his sins? Are we seeing true restitution for the sins that he has committed, or is this all still really, you know, is he still at the point where David was when he was covering things up? That's the question that needs to be asked. Now, I want to make something clear. There is forgiveness and mercy for Mark Driscoll. Absolutely. God is merciful. Christ has bled and died for these sins. But does he really want to be forgiven? Or is he still trying to hide? Is he still whitewashing? That's the question that remains before us. And considering the nature of the sins that he's committed, we have to ask the tough question. Is he still qualified to be in the pastoral office? That's one of the questions that we're about to ask. And we're going to have to take a look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, 9, to take a look at, at the biblical standards regarding this. Now, just like David was forgiven for his sins and his sins were blotted out and God was not going to kill him, at the same time, there were temporal consequences. And if Mark Driscoll had committed adultery on his wife, everybody would understand, hey, listen, you know, there's mercy and forgiveness for him. Pray that he repents and that he's forgiven. But because of what he's done, he's not qualified to be a pastor. The standards for a pastor are he must be above reproach. He cannot be somebody who is greedy for gain. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, what's transpired over the past, you know, several, not, not just the past few months, but for a while now, major things, uh, scandals regarding Mark Driscoll, I would argue that although there is forgiveness for him, what is called for 
is for him to be removed from the pastoral office. We're going to take a break, and we'll cover that aspect of it when we return. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding... uh, Hang on a second, too much. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to take a look at uh, Mark Driscoll's apology letter and notice the details of it. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
you believe that just happened? There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh, yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. And it is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we're about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you have a vision-casting leader who has no accountability. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, next thing we are going to do is we're going to take a look at the letter that Mars Hill sent out to the people there that was from Mark Driscoll. That is the apology letter. And we're going to take our time to walk through this and compare what we are hearing in this letter to what we've just looked at. That's the, the biblical case for repentance, what what it is, what it involves, to see if what we're hearing from Mark Driscoll is true biblical repentance. Now, keep in mind the charges that are against him. Number one, that he plagiarized 
authors in his books. Okay, now the only thing he's admitted to is that there were mistakes made. He hasn't actually come right out and said he's guilty of plagiarism, although in his own words from one of his previous books, he's stated, no doubt, that, that if, if a pastor plagiarizes, he should find another job and should not be a pastor. Mark Driscoll has said that himself. Okay, so And we're up to seven books now where there's been plagiarism found, and his publishers have gone back and cleaned up after him. Okay, So we're up to seven books. The book Real Marriage was one of those books uh, where uh, Dan Allender's work was plagiarized and is now in the new Kindle versions um, is properly cited. But um, Real Marriage is the book that was $210,000 in tithe money was spent to uh, basically game the system and, and manipulate the New York Times best-selling book status in order to make uh, Mark Driscoll a New York Times bestselling author, okay? So <clears throat> you've got the gaming of the system. You have the money being spent with, uh, from tithes and offerings, which, by the way, uh, is probably inurement, which is probably illegal. Um, and con- and you know, by doing this strategy, he may have actually risked um, the tax-exempt status for Mars Hill Church. No joke. That's a reality of this situation. And um, and also keep in mind, <clears throat> with Mark Driscoll, we're also dealing with his statements regarding throwing people under the bus and the pile of dead bodies behind Mars Hill. You have Mark Driscoll, who was the one who participated in Elephant Room 2, interviewed uh, T.D. Jakes and gave him a clean bill of health, despite the fact that T.D. Jakes said that he believes in one God and three persons, if by persons you mean manifestations. So, there, I mean, there's a whole host of things that Driscoll has done over the years. Then you've got the pornographic visions. You've got him, you know, being what's called the cussing pastor. You, you, <clears throat> we've got the uh, Song of Solomon sermon that, uh, you know, blew up on the Internet a few years back. And so there's there's a quite a few things that we can talk about in the history of, of uh, Mark Driscoll of things that he could and should be repenting of, and most specifically, most recently, plagiarism and using $210,000 in tithes and offerings to make him a New York Times bestseller. So those are the things that we're talking about here. Let's take a look at this letter. Here's what Driscoll writes. He says, Thank you. I have received a great deal of love and encouragement from uh, from you for more than 17 years. I genuinely appreciate every person who prays for my family and me. Also, I continue to find great joy in teaching the Bible every week to people I have grown to love with a father's affection. For those of you who have been around for a while, it is amazing for us to see all that Jesus has done. People often ask if our church today resembles what I had originally planned. Not even close. The smallest location of a Mars Hill church is bigger than what my total vision was for the whole church when we started. As the church grew over the years, it was clear that both the church and I were unhealthy in some ways. Now, there's the first admission that there's something wrong, and it was that he's unhealthy. Despite some wonderful people and amazing things that the Holy Spirit was doing in and through them. For years, I felt a joy in teaching the Bible and love for the people, but frankly was overwhelmed on how to organize and lead all that was happening. I felt the crushing weight of responsibility, but did not know what to do, and I lacked the abilities to figure it out. I was frustrated at my shortcomings, but needed help from people who were more experienced and mature. In my worst moments, I was angry in a sinful way. For those occasions, I am sorry. As I've expressed in several sermons, I needed to mature as a leader, and we needed to mature as a church. Now, he's not 
notice he's not actually admitting any particular thing, just kind of in general. If I've done anything, if I was angry in a sinful way, then I'm sorry. Next, he says, in the last year or two, I have been deeply convicted by God that my angry young prophet days are over. Okay, now, this is the first time in this email, but not the last, that he's going to play the prophet card. Okay, and I have to say it that way. This is a man who claims direct revelation from God. So he so he says, I've been convicted by God regarding my angry young that prophet days and that those days are over. So he's no longer an angry young prophet. He's supposedly a mellow, mature prophet. But playing the prophet card is, well, abusive and manipulative. I would say if he's claiming to be a prophet, then he has to be a false prophet. We continue. Um, to be replaced by a helpful Bible-teaching spiritual father. Yeah, let me read the sentence in context. In the last two or, uh, year or two, I have been deeply convicted by God that my angry young prophet days are over and to be replaced by a helpful Bible-teaching spiritual father. Those closest to me have said they recognize a deep change which has been encouraging because I hope to continually be sanctified by God's grace. I understand that people who saw or experienced my sin during this season are hurt and in some cases have not yet come to a place of peace or resolution. Now, my question here is, uh, are we talking about those who were run over by the Mars Hill bus? Is that who we're talking about? I have been burdened by this for the last for the past year and have had private meetings one at a time to learn from, apologize to, and reconcile with people. Um, which people? Um, because I know some guys who were thrown under the Mars Hill bus who haven't even received so much as a phone call or an email inviting them to come and be apologized to and, and be reconciled with. Um, <clears throat> we continue. Many of those meetings... Uh, were among the most encouraging moments in my time at our church. Sadly, not all of those relationships are yet mended, but I am praying that God will uh, is gracious to get us to that place of grace. Now that others have come forward, my desire is to have similar meetings with those who are willing. In the past few years, we have also made significant improvements on how we are governed and organized as a church. Now, I'm going to challenge what he's saying here based upon what he is based upon what he says in the email. And in order to kind of understand what it is my challenge is, I have to read to you a couple of questions. As we read the rest of this email, um, ask yourself these questions. What is Mark Driscoll's punishment for uh, using $210,000 in tithes and offerings to manipulate the New York Times bestseller list? Um, what is his punishment? That's his question. So there's the question. What is his punishment? And then here's the next question. Who decided Driscoll's punishment? Okay, as we're reading through this, ask the question, who decided what Driscoll's punishment is? And then ask this third question, what does his punishment have to do with plagiarism and using tithes and offerings to game the New York Times bestseller list? Okay, so your three questions are, what is his punishment? Who decided his punishment? And what does his punishment have to do with plagiarism and with using tithe money to game the New York Times system? So, you know, keep those questions in mind because here he said that they've improved, um, the improvements have been made in how Mars Hill is governed. I'm challenging that statement based upon what I see in this email, based upon the answer to those questions. So we continue. <clears throat> he says, This has been difficult but long overdue. The Board of Advisors and Accountability is a great blessing to us all. 
as they combine wise counsel and strong oversight. Again, I'm going to challenge that statement, strong oversight, um, based upon those three questions that I asked. Uh, During this process, I have been a pastor for a long time, but have not had a close pastor since college. I now rejoice that God has been gracious to give me pastors for accountability and wise counsel through their counsel to confess my own sin while not being distracted by the shortcomings of others. The Holy Spirit is making me a better man and a pastor, which I pray helps us to become a better church. This is the truest and strongest pastoral love and accountability that I have ever had. And I thank the Lord for it. Pastor Dave and uh, Pastor Sutton, have also joined me as executive elders. They have been very helpful in getting my team and me to the most unified, loving, and healthy place we have ever been. I really love our church, and I see where it was unhealthy, where it has gotten healthier, and where we can continue in that path. I am very encouraged by where we are and where we are going. So all of that to just tell us, oh, listen, things have been rough in the past, but you know it's all coming up roses now, okay? Next sentence. However, this process has required a lot of changes, and admittedly, we did not handle all of these changes equally well. We are fully aware of and grieved by ways we could have done better with a more effective process and more patience, starting with me. I am deeply grieved and even depressed by the pain we have caused. Many have chosen to air their concerns online, and I apologize for any burden this may have brought on you and I will do my best to clarify a few things without, I hope, being aggressive or defensive. Okay, now the the audience he's talking to are people at Mars Hill. This is not, you know, this is not a broad general audience. So he's acknowledging that things things haven't exactly gone well, and people have aired their grievances online, which has then caused grieve you know people within Mars Hill to be grieved. So he's going to talk about that without being angry or defensive. Here's what he says: <clears throat> First. A marketing company called Result Source was used in conjunction with the book Real Marriage, which was released in January of 2012. My understanding of Result Source marketing strategy was to maximize book sales so that we could reach more people with the message and help grow our church. In retrospect, I no longer see it that way. Instead, I now see it as manipulating a book sales reporting system, which is wrong. I am sorry that I used this strategy. I will never use it again. I have also asked my publisher to not use the number one New York Times bestseller status in future publications, and I'm working to remove this from past publications as well. <clears throat> now, I'm going to stop there. Okay, I'm happy that he's apologized for manipulating the New York Times book sales reporting system. That is a full-on admission that he did that. But remember when it came to David and Bathsheba, there was more than one sin. David got Bathsheba pregnant, committed adultery with her, and she got pregnant. David murdered Uriah the Hittite. Now, in this particular case, yes, it's true that Mark Driscoll utilized results source and in order to manipulate the New York Times best-selling uh, reporting system. This is true. And I'm glad he apologized for it. But notice what he didn't apologize for. Using $210,000 in tithes and offerings, which is a form of inurement, which is probably illegal, which could jeopardize their nonprofit status there at Mars Hill. And, uh, and he 
personally benefited from this manipulation, probably to the tune of half a million dollars in uh, in royalties for himself. Okay, so yeah, I'm glad that he's admitted that he used Result Source, but he didn't acknowledge that the money came from tithes and offerings. He didn't acknowledge that he personally benefited to the tune of probably a half a million dollars in royalties by using this particular method. Okay, He hasn't addressed that. It just remains an unmentioned part of all of this, which is a problem. This would be like David just basically saying, all right, all right, yeah, I admit it. I, I got Bathsheba pregnant. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're confessing that. Um, but we also need to talk about how Uriah the Hittite is no longer breathing. Uh, that, that's got to be part of the discussion here, but it's not. Okay, we continue. Second, in recent years, some have used the language of celebrity pastor to describe me and some other Christian leaders. In my experience, celebrity pastors eventually get enough speaking and writing opportunities outside the church that their focus on the church is compromised until eventually they decide to leave and go on and do other things. Without judging any of those who have done this, let me be clear that my desires are exactly the opposite. I want to be under pastoral authority in community and a Bible teaching pastor who grows as a loving spiritual father at home and in our church home for years to come. I don't see how I can be both a celebrity and a pastor, and so I'm happy to give up the former so that I can focus on the latter. Um, okay. Again, that's one facet of the celebrity pastor issue, but it doesn't address the other facets. Okay, it, and so w what he admits is good, but it's insufficient. We continue. When I was a new Christian at the age of 19, God spoke to me and told me to do four things. So here we go again. With This is the second time now that the prophet card is playing. Okay. First time was when he said he was an angry young prophet, and now we've got another time in this where he's playing the direct revelation card. When I was a new Christian at the age of 19, God spoke to me and told me to do four things. Today I see that calling as love grace in our family, preach the Bible, train leaders, especially men, and plant churches. This is a direct vision from God, supposedly. Other things may be good, but I do not have the time or energy for them right now. My family and our church family need me focused and energized, and that is my deep desire. Therefore, I will be spending my energies growing in Christ-like character by grace, staying connected to grace and our kids, that's his wife, loving and serving Mars Hill Church, which continues to grow, teaching the Bible and serving Christian leaders through such things as blogs and podcasts at Resurgence. Starting this fall, I will also be teaching at Corbin University and Western Seminary in Bellevue, to invest in young leaders for a season I want to pull back from many things in order for us to focus on the most important things, glorify Jesus, uh, Jesus by making disciples and planting churches as healthy, loving, and unified church with our hands on the Bible and our eyes on Jesus. Okay, um, so he played the direct revelation card, and he's basically at this point saying that he's renewed his focus and vigor on um, fulfilling the direct revelation he thinks he received from God, which also includes him um, training leaders and being a seminary prof and having a big influence on young Christian leaders coming up through the ranks. <clears throat> to continue, he says, to reset my life, 
I will not be on social media for at least the remainder of the year. Now, again, remember the questions I asked. What is his, you know, what is his punishment? Who came up with the idea for his punishment? And what does his punishment have to do with the, uh, the, the charges, with the things that he actually, the sins that he committed? Okay. Notice he's at this point still speaking in first person. To reset my life, I will not be on social media for at least the remainder of the year. The distractions it can cause for my family and our church family are not fruitful or helpful at this time. At the end of the year, I will consider if and when to reappear on social media, and I will seek the counsel of my pastors on this matter. In the meantime, Mars Hill and Resurgence will continue to post blogs, sermons, podcasts on my social media accounts, but otherwise I'm going offline. Okay, so here's his punishment so far. He's no longer going to be a New York Times best-selling author, and he's taking a sabbatical, or you can say a self-imposed timeout from social media. Okay, who came up with those ideas? Mark Driscoll did. Okay, okay, we will continue though with this this email. He also says, I will also be doing much less travel and speaking in the next season. In recent years, I have cut back significantly, but I will now cut back even more. So he's going to cut back on his speaking engagements. I've canceled some speaking events, and I'm still determining the best course of action for a few that I've committed to, as they are evangelistic opportunities to invite people to salvation in Jesus Christ, which is something I care about deeply. I will be doing very few media interviews, if any. Uh huh. And I'm communicating with my publisher to determine how to meet my existing obligations and have a much less intense writing schedule. Personally, I find this all relieving. The pressure and the pace has increased ever since I started in 1996. I don't want to be burned out or angry. I want to become more like Jesus every year. I want to teach the Bible, love well, and run at a pace to finish my race many decades from now. My health is actually in the best place it's been in recent years. I have a skilled and unified team that loves you and can handle more responsibility if I free up the time and energy to love them and invest in them. Grace and the kids are doing very well, and my family is still my joy and my priority. This year we will have three of our five kids as teenagers and our oldest will be a senior preparing for college. I don't want to miss this season as, as these are years I can never get back. If I go, if if I'm going to err, I I want to be uh, err on the side of guarding too much time and energy for family and church family rather than not enough to be clear. These are decisions I have come to. Did you hear that? These are decisions I have come to. Now, again, so here's the question. What is Mark Driscoll's punishment, again, for manipulating the New York Times bestseller list with churches, tithes, and offerings, which then resulted in him having a windfall of money that he doesn't address, and the book itself had plagiarized material in it? Okay, Does he address sufficiently all of the issues? No. What's his punishment? Um, He's going to cut back on his schedule. He's going to take a sabbatical from social media, um, but other people are going to uh, post on his accounts. And, um, yeah, we, and oh, yeah, he's no longer a New York Times bestselling author. Who, who came up with the punishment? He did. Now, this is really important, the next part, okay, because I only read half the sentence, Okay. To be clear, these are decisions I have come to. 
Okay, that's the first part of the sentence. Now listen to the next part. This will be the next time, the third time in this email, he plays the direct revelation card. To be clear, these are decisions I have come to with our senior pastor, Jesus Christ. So apparently him and Jesus sat down for some coffee at Starbucks to discuss his punishment. And he and Jesus came up with the punishment of he's off social media for the rest of the year, needs to cut back on his travel schedule, and he's no longer a New York Times bestselling author. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. To be clear, these are decisions I have come to with our senior pastor, Jesus Christ. I believe this is what he is asking of me, and so I want to obey him. So to challenge, by the way, this is a form of vision casting, to challenge the punishment that that, uh, Driscoll and Jesus have come up with, well, you're, you're challenging Jesus. Uh huh. So the first person I discussed this was with our uh, uh, the first person I discussed this with was our first and still best church member, Grace. Her loving agreement and wise counsel only confirmed this wonderful opportunity to reset some aspects of our life. I want to publicly thank her as it was 26 years ago this week that we had our first date. She is the greatest friend and biggest blessing in my life after Jesus. When we recently discussed this plan to reset our life together late at night on the couch, she started crying tears of joy. She did not know how to make our life more sustainable and did not want to discourage me, but had been praying that God would reveal to me a way to reset our life. Her prayer was answered, and for that we are both relieved at what a sustainable, joyful, and fruitful future could be. As an anniversary present, I want to give her more of her best friend. I have also submitted these decisions. Now notice what he said here. I submitted these decisions, these decisions that me and Jesus came up with, to the Board of Advisors and Accountability. They have, a, they have approved of this direction and are 100% supportive of these changes. It's a wonderful thing to have true accountability. He doesn't. He, this is not true accountability. This is, not, this is the opposite of that. So here in this carefully worded email... Um, Driscoll's just glowing over the fact that it's wonderful to have true accountability, yet everything in this email shows that he has zero accountability, none whatsoever. Let me read this again. I have also submitted these decisions, again, the decisions that Driscoll and Jesus came up with, to the Board of Advisors and Accountability. They have approved of this direction and are 100% supportive of these changes. It's a wonderful thing to have true accountability and not be an independent decision-maker regarding my ministry, and most importantly, our church. Uh-huh. So the, the Board of Advisors and Accountability just rubber-stamped these discipline actions, right? After taking $210,000 in tithes and offerings and using it to deceitfully scheme and, you know, and manipulate the New York Times bestselling uh, list, for a book with plagiarized material, the you, Jesus, and the Board of Accountability Advisors all agree that the that what should happen here is not that you confess that you've actually done this with this money, but just admit that it was wrong to manipulate, and that the appropriate measures to take are that you are no longer on social media for the remainder of the year. So you're putting yourself in social media timeout. You no longer are a New York Times bestselling author, which you shouldn't be. Um, and you're resetting your life and becoming more of a father figure. 
in, in fact, you can almost say a bishop. Uh-huh. Let me continue reading. <clears throat> um, lastly, uh-huh. If God would lead you to pray for me, the scripture he has impressed upon me this past year or two is 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As I get older, I am seeking to increasingly love our people as I do my own children in order for our church to be a great family because of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Father's affection, Pastor Mark Driscoll. Now, that's the whole email. Was there true repentance? Was there true confession of sins? Now, I'll grant that there was a confession of sorts. But again, it's like David saying, okay, all right, you're right. Yeah, all right, I slept with Bathsheba. Where's her husband? Well, (laughs) um... I, I can't talk about that um, because uh, Jesus, you know, my CEO and uh, the, who, the senior pastor, he, he's decided that the right thing for me to do um, regarding uh, my tryst with Bathsheba, um, although she seduced me, is um, is to um, uh, to cancel my library card at the Jerusalem Public Library, and so for the rest of the year, I will no longer be going to the library. Um, but focusing on my kingly duties and uh, and spending time with my family. That's what this is. It's pretty much the same thing. So we're going to end now by re-examining from Titus chapter one the uh, the requirements for being a pastor. Okay, and ask this question: Is Mark Driscoll? still qualified to be a pastor in Christ's church. Okay, here's what Paul writes, Titus chapter 1. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, that's a huge standard. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward, listen to this, must be above reproach. Huh? That's two times. It says, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. And yet, this email drips of arrogance. I was an angry young prophet. I've checked in with my CEO, Jesus. I submitted my disciplinary ideas to my wife and to the Board of Accountability Advisors, and they approved it. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Is not his decision to use $210,000 in tithes and offerings to manipulate the New York Times bestselling author list a form of greedy for gain? And again, Dr. Duncan from the Pajama Pages has demonstrated that at the very minimum, Driscoll ended up benefiting to the tune of a half a million dollars by the increased sales as a result of having a bump from manipulating the New York Times bestseller list. Has he repented, truly repented for all of the facets of that particular sin? And again, what was his explanation regarding plagiarism? Well, we employed ghost writers and, um, and there were research assistants and mistakes were made. And now we know that seven books have had to be completely changed and you know, properly cited. Seven books where there's flagrant plagiarism. Is he above reproach? No. 
greedy for gain? Yeah. Okay? That's part and parcel of the whole celebrity pastor thing that he didn't even address, the greedy for gain part. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So um, that's the standard. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that there can't be or isn't grace for Mark Driscoll. There is. But what I'm not hearing from Mark Driscoll is him actually for real owning the sins that he's committed. Instead, it's obfuscation. He acknowledges one facet while ignoring the rest. I mean, I didn't hear anything on his part of admitting that he made a huge amount of money because of manipulating the New York Times bestseller list. I didn't hear anything about any desire to res- for restitution for what he did. Remember, we I, I, you know, at the beginning of the hour, I read to you uh, the story of uh, Zacchaeus, where Jesus goes to his house. And what does Zacchaeus say that he's going to do? If I've defrauded anybody, I restore it fourfold, he said. And I'm going to behold, I'm going to give half of my money to the to the poor. That was Zacchaeus's repentance. John the Baptist, when he convicted people of their sins, they said, "What shall we do?" He gave them instructions on how to live their lives bearing fruit in keeping with the repentance that they had. But I'm not hearing that from Driscoll. This is pretty much, yeah, we're going to, you know, I'm going to get off of social media for the rest of the year, kind of cut back on my schedule and, you know, kind of, I'm going to clean things up here. This is not repentance. This is not contrition. This is not real sorrow. It may be a start towards it, But the fact that he has left so much unaddressed, unaccounted for, unmentioned, as if it doesn't exist, you know, the the deeper facets of the sins that he did talk about is troubling. And the reason why it's troubling is because Mark Driscoll in this email has given himself a promotion. He's now basically saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a father figure to more leaders. He's basically saying that Jesus is giving him a promotion from being a pastor to being a bishop. And the, and the worst thing that happens to him, he's no longer a New York Times bestseller, and he's taking a sabbatical from, from social media. But other people will be posting for him using his accounts. Is this true discipline? Is the man even qualified anymore to be a pastor in the church? I don't see how he is. I don't see how he is. What needs to happen for his sake and for the sake of the people at Mars Hill and for the church at large is that Mark Driscoll needs to actually confess his real sins and put them all out there and then ask for forgiveness and then step down. That's what really needs to happen because he does not any longer meet the qualifications of a man who's to hold the pastoral office. This is not my opinion. This is just a matter of fact. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. 
quick break. When we come back, we'll be listening to an Erwin McManus update, uh, a sermon. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. It has been a while since we have done an Erwin McManus sermon. Yeah, we spotted him at uh, Troy Grambling's Potential Church. And boy, is this a doozer of a Bible twist. Details coming forthwith. The Bad, the Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Potential Church out there in Florida. And uh, it's Erwin McManus presiding. The name of the sermon series is Family Restoration. And Erwin McManus recently appeared out there in Potential Church to discuss his new book entitled The Artisan Soul. And this is the epitome of a sermon that is man-centered rather than Christ-centered. And the things he says in here, 
Again, it's the crack of the dragon's tail that we're listening to. It's really that bad. In fact, I think we should just get right to it. Let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Erwin McManus and his sermon entitled The Artisan's Soul. Here we go. How are you guys doing this morning? And it is great to be here with you. What a great name, Potential. I don't know if you know, there are a lot of bad names out there. Potential is awesome. I grew up down the street. I went to Southwest Miami High School, grew up here in Miami, Florida. And this region, I know this is not quite Miami, but it's sort of all Miami spreading all the way up through Georgia. And we're so excited about all the great things that are happening here in Florida, what's happening here at Potential and the way you're touching the world. And our home is Los Angeles, California. And so we live on the other side of the country. We have an ocean as well. Ours is bigger. And I'm just saying, I'm just saying, no, no, that's a problem. And six years ago, I used to be a writer. I used to write about a book a year. And then I went silent for the last six years and, and spent several years working in the fashion industry and in the film industry. I began diving into a lot of different creative endeavors and, and, and frankly, had to try to reconcile this integration between spirituality and, and creativity. Because for so long, it seemed as if the central narrative of the church was that there was no room for creativity. For so long, it seemed that God's one intention was to move us toward conformity and standardization. Mm, what is he talking about? Um, are we talking about conformity to the Ten Commandments? Conformity to sound doctrine? He's just, he's just throwing out conformity in an abstract sense without defining it. That could be, uh, well, well, how do I put this? That could be mm, interpreted in a lot of different ways, but he's not very um, resolute on defining what he means. Just apparently standardization is bad. But isn't it good if we're obeying God's law? Isn't it good if we're believing the truth and believing sound doctrine and teaching sound doctrine and not tolerating doctrinal innovation and creativity? Isn't that a good thing? And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was in New Zealand and I was speaking to a room full of filmmakers and uh, people in the television and radio and film industry. And, and one of the more successful directors asked me a question. You're talking about creativity. How do you reconcile your call to creativity with the Bible leaving so little room for creativity. And you can feel the room. Creativity in what? Where does the Bible stifle artistic creativity? It doesn't. Where does the Bible stifle um, business creativity? It doesn't. What it does stifle is creativity in morals and creativity in doctrine. There was a tension there. It became deathly silent. And I knew that this is what most of the people in the room who grew up in the church had heard all their lives, that the Bible leaves very little room for creativity. And in that moment, I could, I just, I could feel this anger inside of me. Maybe it was a zeal. And how could the God who created the universe ever be known as the God who's trying to snuff out creativity? How, how could the scriptures that are 
the history of where in the Bible does God snuff out artistic creativity? He snuffs out moral creativity, he snuff, which is immorality. He snuffs out and blocks doctrinal creativity because that creates heresy. This is a straw man. The creative act of God within human history ever be understood as a manuscript for conformity. And it hit me in that moment, we need to take the Bible back from those who have turned this book into a manuscript for conformity and reclaim. We need to take the Bible back. Listen to what he's saying. We need to take the Bible back from those who are using it as a manuscript for conformity. Huh. And yet scripture says, teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. In fact, it's in the Titus passage that I uh, read earlier today. Um, I've, Titus chapter 1. In fact, uh, let me, in fact, let me read this. Um, For a, an elder must hold firmly to trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Yeah, so what is he talking about? Taking the Bible back from those who are using it as a manuscript for conformity? Yet the Bible's very clear there's certain things that there's supposed to be conformity on. But what is he talking about? It as a manifesto for creativity. I want you to know today that if you've never understood this, that the creator of the universe created you in his image and you were created to create. You were an idea in the mind of God before you were ever a reality in the life of your mother and father. To Jeremiah, God said, before you were born, I knew you. Do you hear what he's saying? You were an idea in my mind before you were a human being. You were a dream in the mind of God before you became the joy or the apple of your mother's eye. Yeah, that's great and all, but how do you get from that to it's, you've got to be creative then? You see what I'm saying here? Is it a sin if I'm not creative? I love that we come from the imagination and then we've been given this gift of imagination. So when I sat down to write The Artisan's Soul, what, what really was frustrating to me is when my wife Kim, who I love, we've been married for 30 years, said, you're going to write a book again? And I said, yes, I am. She goes, what's it going to be called? And I said, it's going to be called The Artisan's Soul. And she immediately responded, well, great, you're writing a book for people like you, but what about the rest of us? And I, I realized at the moment that's exactly why, I, why I'm writing this book. My wife is one of the most creative people you'll ever meet. She has a teaching degree, K through ninth grade. She has a master's in theology. When I, I remember when I was not dating my wife, before I was dating my wife, but when I knew I would be dating my wife, they, they, they dragged me to go bowling, which is not my favorite thing to do. But I wanted to be with her, and she wanted to go bowling with her friends. So we went, and she started miming down the alley. And I thought, got to marry this girl. How did 30 years later, this girl that was miming in a bowling alley understand herself to not be a creative human being. So I want to read you a passage of scripture because I think this passage relates to all of us in our own journey. 
Okay, now listen to what he just said. I'm going to read you a passage because I believe it applies to all of us in our own journey. Who is he preaching? Is he preaching you, me, himself? Yeah. Is he preaching Christ? No. How much do you want to bet that the passage that he's going to be quoting from is about Jesus? You Listen, you don't want to take me on this bet, by the way. If you, know, if you were to bet me a dollar, you'd lose a dollar. That's how bad this is going to be, okay? The text he's going to misquote by ignoring the context is all about Jesus. It's not about you or me, and it's not about our creativity. He's going to take this text and literally hogtie it and wrestle it and yank it away from being about Jesus to making it be about you when it's not. Uh huh. And he's a master at it. Erwin McManus is one of the most dangerous leaders in the seeker driven movement on the planet. And he is a skilled manipulator of the Bible. Well, there are people who are sincere, sincere in their faith, sincere in their devotion to God, and they've come to believe that God's ultimate intention is our obedience. And we do not. Re- they've. Oh, man, I got to back this up. I mean, did you hear that? I mean,. We've got Christians running around who think that somehow God's ultimate intention is our obedience. What is the problem that humanity faces? Sin. What is sin? Disobedience to God. Listen again. For this world, there are people who are sincere, sincere in their faith, sincere in their devotion to God, and they've come to believe that God's ultimate intention is our obedience. So God just wants creativity in the obedience department? And we do not realize that obedience was simply a passageway to freedom. Oh, so we just don't understand. Obedience is that's just a, a portal into freedom. Uh-huh. Where are you getting that from? God's ultimate intention for your life is not that you conform, not that you're standardized, not that you become like everyone else. Huh. It's weird. I seem to ref call a, a passage of scripture talking about being conformed to the image of Christ. Let me see if I can find this. Yep, here it is. Uh, Romans chapter 8. I'll start at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hmm, there's something in Scripture about us being conformed to the image of Christ. Hmm, and yet, well, Erwin, don't you understand? It's not anything about obedience. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's just a portal into freedom. Uh-huh. Whenever God calls us to obedience, it's because he's setting us to the place of freedom. And he's not simply calling us to freedom so we can be free. He's calling us to freedom so that we can create because you are created in the image and likeness of God. So he's calling us to freedom so we can create. We can all be like Picassos and stuff. Right. And you were imagined to imagine and you were created to create. I was imagined to imagine. Um, What Bible passage says that? I want you to read with me in the book of Acts, chapter 7. Yeah, now before he gets to that. Before he gets to Acts chapter 7, let's actually apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. And they are context, context, 
and context. Yep, that's right. Those are the three rules for sound biblical exegesis. 90% of the time, you can spot a Bible twister by simply, simply putting the passage back in its immediate context. So Acts chapter 7 is the story of Stephen. It's actually partway through the story of Stephen, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to go to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to read the entire account of the martyrdom of Stephen, and we're going to take a look at the section that Erwin McManus is ripping from its context to find out what this passage is really about. Is it about us being creative beings and being created to create, us being imagined so that we can imagine? Is that what this text is about, or is it about Jesus? Trust me when I tell you, it's going to be about Jesus. And I won't even have to push hard for that to happen because Stephen himself will tell you. Now, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 is where we'll begin. Here's what it says. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, that is, uh, that it was called, and the Cyrenians of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face. It was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, okay, now this begins Stephen's great monologue, which, by the way, is inspired by God the Holy Spirit, is recorded for us in Scripture, and this is one of those big, grand, meta-narrative portions of Scripture that gives us the whole sweep of the entire Bible. Here's what uh, Stephen said. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and, I, and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him. On the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they all were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, the promise what? The promised Messiah, which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would be uh, not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and they have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, 
and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, uh, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so you do." Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Uh huh. So all of that retelling of the ancient story of Israel was basically to point out that it's all pointing to the promised one. And now Stephen turns his bony finger and points out the fact that the Jews there were rejecting the promised Messiah, okay, and that they killed him. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at them. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. So there's the story of the stoning of Stephen and his great monologue, which takes us through the grand sweep of the Old Testament, right? And brings us right to Christ. Because that's really who Stephen was preaching and who it was who received his spirit when he was murdered by these men. So, that's the story. You know it now in its entirety and its full context. Let's hear what Erwin McManus does with this. This is in the middle of Stephen's one and only message. And he points to Moses to explain what God is doing in the world. I'll begin in verse 18, he says, Then a new king, to whom Moses meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For those months, he was cared for in his father's home, or his parents' home. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It was powerful speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by the Egyptians, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites, and they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? 
But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groanings and I have come down to set them free. I've come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Now I imagine that most of us here are familiar with the story of Moses. We know how the story plays out. But there's one particular line here, one description about Moses' life that has always struck me as unusual. It's that opening phrase, and not only is it here in the message of Stephen, but it's also in the book of Hebrews. It says, when Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. That seems to me an odd statement. Yeah, and you might want to check the Greek on that because the Greek will actually clear things up for you. Um, It basically says, the NIV translates it as he was no ordinary child, but... The Greek is actually pretty straightforward, and he was beautiful in the sight of God, or, you know, he was beautiful in God. It's an idiom, okay? He was beautiful in the sight of God is how the ESV translates that particular idiom. So um, it's funny that Erwin didn't care to check, you know, other translations, maybe the original languages to find out what's going on there, because his whole point hinges on the NIV's translation without him investigating what's behind it in the Greek text. When Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. And I thought about it, and I wondered, well, why would he say that? I think when Moses was born, he looked incredibly ordinary. And again, the Greek text says he was beautiful in the eyes of God or in the sight of God. I don't think when Moses was born, there was a glow or he didn't come out saying, let my people go. He just came out like an ordinary child. See, what's really happening here is that Stephen and the writers of the Hebrew history were projecting backwards on Moses' life. No, actually, this is a theological statement, and they're they're not projecting here. Because it's not that he was no ordinary child. The NIV kind of misses the point of the idiom. He was beautiful in the sight of God. That's what the text says. Saying that when Moses was born, he was no ordinary child, not because there was something extraordinary in his birth, but because they're projecting back, looking at his extraordinary life and saying when he was born, he was extraordinary. But I have a feeling when he was born... That's not the truth. ...looked ordinary just like you and me. In fact, let's be honest. Humans, when we're born, are hideous. I mean, there's some species that really come out looking good. Baby calves are beautiful. Baby tigers, amazing. Have you ever seen like a, a, a baby lion or an elephant... They come out like small versions of the real thing. Puppies are beautiful. I hate cats. But even kitties are cute. Humans are hideous. I mean, there's nothing cute about a human. That's why we don't have that kind of affection. I mean, we, we love babies. But only a mother can really think that baby is beautiful. They come out of the wound. Oh, look how beautiful he is. He's not beautiful. 
He's like a massive bowling ball with an appendage called a body. The only reason mothers actually do believe that baby is beautiful is because they've been traumatized by birth. And this human has finally been exited out. of. And now he's engaging in stand-up comedy to add further obfuscation to this text because his whole point that he's making hinges on a misunderstanding of of this text, but he didn't actually care to actually study it to find out what was really going on there. Their bodies after a year of residency without paying rent, which doesn't end till they're around 29. And then they look at the father and say, isn't he beautiful? Dads know, they know. This is like a hideous creature. It looks like my grandmother shrunken down and wrinkled, but I'm going to pretend he's beautiful. And eventually they grow into their head. And humans were, were really not capable of any functional value. We're born naked, without any skills or capacities. We can't walk or talk. We can't feed ourselves. We can't dress ourselves. We were unemployable, which again lasts till about 29. And, and so when this passage says when Moses was born, he was no ordinary child, it, it's not trying to give us some kind of esoteric description of Moses. What it's telling us is because of his life, we can look back at the end and trace it to the beginning and know there is something extraordinary inside of Moses when he was born. Wrong. The Greek text on this couldn't be clearer. Again, the text says, and the ESV picks this up perfectly. It says, he, Moses, was beautiful in God's sight, or he was beautiful in God. This is what the Greek text says. It's not that there was something amazingly creative inside of him. You're twisting this text rather skillfully at that. But I want you to know there has never been an ordinary human being born on this planet. And if no one has ever told you this, when you were born, you were no ordinary child. So now we've jumped from Moses being ordinary to you, well, Moses not being ordinary to you not being ordinary. Crack of the uh, the dragon's tail going on here. Oh, I'm, I'll be like God. I'm amazing. I'm, uh, I'm powerful. I'm, it's all about me. That's what we're hearing. When you were born, you were born with extraordinary capacity. But here's the the dilemma. Scripture says you were born dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Scripture says. Ephesians chapter 2 comes into play now. Ephesians chapter 2 says this about you. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So notice what Erwin McManus is doing here. He is just playing on their egos and telling them how wonderful they are. And all of this is based upon a mistranslation or misapplication of the NIV translation from uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 20, where it says Moses was no ordinary you know, child. The, the Greek, again, says that he was beautiful in God's sight. That's what the Greek says. And 
Erwin has now made this, oh, you are just amazing. You are full of potential. Is he telling them that they're dead in trespasses and sins and need to repent and trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? No, because he's taking the Bible back from those people who would who would turn it into a manuscript of conformity, right? He's going to tell them how wonderful they are, not how sinful they are. Tell them how much potential they have, not that they're heading to hell. And he's going to just stroke their egos while they're on the way, the broad road to hell. That's what he's doing. We continue. If there has never been an ordinary human being born, the truth is most of us die having lived painfully ordinary lives. Is that our problem? Is that we're all facing an ordinary life? Or we're facing an eternity in hell? Somewhere between our first breath and our last breath, we lose our sense of self. Even science affirms this. Children just have an incredible capacity for learning, for knowledge, for adaptation. In fact, some of the studies of divergent versus convergent thinking tells us that that about 95% of children naturally think of what they call divergent thinking. You can think of multiple solutions to one problem. If you want to see imaginative answers to a question, just ask a child and let them go crazy. See, children naturally color outside of the lines. Children naturally find multiple solutions to one problem. They they have this natural creative capacity known as divergent thinking. But by the age of 12, only about 5% of humans think in divergent patterns. By the age of 12, human beings are almost completely transformed into our, our called convergent thinkers. And so now we know how to fill in the blank. Now we know the one answer... So this is terrible. Oh, no. You need to be saved from convergent thinking and become a divergent thinker. This is salvation. I don't think so. To the question. And we spend our lives beating out of our species their creativity, their genius. I wonder, in this room, how many would would, would say that you would consider yourself an artisan? Raise your hand. You have a few. I like how you raised your hand so quickly. That's nice. All right, so the rest of you are just created to admire. Am I a sinner if I don't consider myself an artisan? Right. How many would say, well, I, I'm a creative like, genius? Raise your hand. Okay. Two for two. You're doing well. And, uh, but not a lot of you. The rest of you are looking around going, what? I know him. He's not a creative genius. <laughs> yeah, because Jesus said, you know, a creative genius is never accepted in his hometown. Hey, let's just try one more. How many of you would say that you're linguistic savants? You're just great at languages. Raise your hand. Wow. Almost no one. That usually only happens in a room full of white people. And all right, I'm just telling you, it's strange. But here's the strange thing about it. Most of you would say, well, I'm not a linguistic savant. I'm not good at languages. And in fact, I would say most of you probably think I'm not good at languages at all. But but here's the particular thing about this. How many here speak English? Yeah, I know. It's a trick question. Okay. And uh, English is one of the most difficult languages in the world. 
if we have all these rules and then we never follow them. I'm telling you, as an immigrant from El Salvador who spoke a language whose main language was Spanish and I learned English here in the States, English is a really difficult language to learn. But most of you here did not learn English when you were 21. You did not learn English when you were 13. You learned English when you were two. Think about that. You learned the most difficult language in the world at the age of two. You are a linguistic savant. You are a prodigy. You, you, you're, you... Wow. And what does this have to do with sin, repentance, the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross? All of that? Nothing. It takes our eyes completely off of Christ and puts it right back on ourselves. I'm amazing, aren't I? You could do this before you could walk. You learned English before you could make it to the toilet and poop in the right place. You had such creative genius. You learned a language and you learned how to communicate everything you needed to communicate. And I'm telling you, you did, you did not maximize your potential. They could have moved you to China and you would have learned Mandarin. Yes, you. They would have moved you to, to the Philippines. You would have learned Tagalog at the age of two. They could have moved you to Japan and you would have learned Japanese. They could have moved you to Brazil and you would have learned Portuguese at the age of two as if it were nothing but eating cake. They could have moved you to England and you would have learned English. <laughs> but proper English. Because at the age of two, at the age of three, you had not yet learned what you could not do. But something happens, just like our, our brains begin to rigidify and, and they only stay alive in our areas of focus. So much of our lives are about surviving and fitting in and conforming and being standardized and being accepted and being loved that we end up pushing out of our souls the things that make us uniquely us. See, when you were born, you were no ordinary child. That's the gift God has given you. When you were born, you were no ordinary child. Whew. Scripture says you were born dead in trespasses and sins. Not only is this a denial of the doctrine of original sin, it's based upon a faulty translation of the Greek text from the NIV. And it's complete deception that he's engaging in satanic puffing up of ego telling you how wonderful you are rather than telling you of your guilt and your need of a savior but you may die having lived an ordinary life because you did not embrace the stewardship of that gift oh no die living an ordinary life doing ordinary things that's terrible. Yeah, what does it I mean, what's it matter if you gain the whole world and have the most creativity ever if you lose your soul and you end up in hell for eternity? The movement of Jesus should be the greatest revolution of human creativity that has ever been seen on this planet. Says you, but where does it say that in scripture? I don't understand how a person can come to the God who created the universe, who on his first effort spoke and there was light and there were solar systems and cosmoses and, and, and there was an ever-expanding universe and there was dark matter and dark energy. This God... I'm not God and neither are you. I'm a creature. I'm one of the things he created. 
created supernovas and suns and moons and created the atmosphere of this planet. How can we be created in the image of this creative God and think that somehow coming to God moves us to standardization and conformity? Who thinks that? What are you talking about? Standardization and conformity to sound doctrine, standardization and conformity to God's law. What, but is that bad? When you understand who God is and understand who you are, you have an awakening of creativity. God begins to awaken your potential and you begin to... Where are you getting this from? Because it's not found in Acts 7. Realize that there's something inside of you that the world must be given as a gift that God has given you. There's something inside of you that the world must be given as a gift. I thought the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, not the gift of creativity lying dormant inside of me. The word is a gift to the world. I, I don't know if you can tell, but, but my name doesn't really match who I am. My name is Erwin Raphael McManus. My first name is German. My last name is Irish, and I'm not German or Irish. That's why I use my middle name, so I can remember who I am. You see, I I grew up in the middle of of a huge identity crisis. When I was born, my mom came to the States, and I stayed in El Salvador, and my grandparents raised me for the first five years of my life or so. And I really didn't understand who my mom was. I thought my grandparents were my parents, because my mom and my dad... uh, split up, really, while she was pregnant with me. And I have only a small glimpse of my father. I know he was a linguistic expert, and I know he was really, really great at languages, but he was also an alcoholic, and he was violent. And my mom came to Miami to prepare for a better life for all of us. And and when I was five and my brother was around seven, she came back, and she brought us to the States, and we began again. And she met a man in Miami who was involved in what we called creative underground economies. Some of you understand that later. And, and so my mom met him and felt that like she needed to provide a father for us. And he met my mom and he needed a new identity. And so they got married 17 days later. And he took us to a police station where we walked in. He convinced them that we had been robbed and had no identification. And I walked out McManus that day. It wasn't his name either. It was just an alias. And so suddenly, one day in Miami, Florida, I went from having a name that had Cardona Sandoval Mesa Paspinto on it to McManus. I was Irish suddenly. And then I went back to El Salvador to my grandfather because I told him I need a good American first name. Because you know your name matters, right? You ever notice that your first name is sort of the pecking order of where you are in elementary school? I mean, if your name is Brandon... You had a date every Friday night through high school. And eventually you married Jessica or Tiffany. It just happens that way. And right? They're solid names. They're good names. But my name is Irwin. Just pause for a moment. Reflect on that. And understand my pain. So you cannot grow up with the name Irwin. And now where he gets the name Irwin from is, well, it's a little bit disturbing. Pay attention to the details. Go through life easily. And that wasn't even my real name. That was my upgrade. 
Because I was in El Salvador and I said to my grandfather, Papi, I need a good American name. I don't know why I asked him. He'd never been to the United States. He did not speak English. He didn't know, but he wasn't going to tell me he didn't know. So I made this huge deal of it. I'm like 10 years old. He's like, oh, pues un nombre. <laughs> he starts pacing up and down. Hmm. Este nombre tiene que... It needs to express genius. Like, what? So his name needs to express genius. Again, pay attention to the details on this. It is disturbing. I was a straight D student, first through 12th grade. I did not need a name that expressed genius. Este nombre tiene que tener el carácter de valor. It needs to be the name of someone courageous. Genius and courageous. Which Irwins in history are known for being genius and courageous? You're drawing a blank. Just keep rolling with it. It needs to be the name of a, of a conqueror. Genius, courageous conqueror. No, that's, that's, that's not what I, I'm looking for. A name where I just disappear. I was really looking for a good, solid name that everyone had. And I'm not the conqueror. See, my brother was named after Alexander the Great. Live with that all your life. I'm the guy that the girls could beat up. So I'm like, I don't really need a big name. And finally he said, su nombre es Herwing. See, you can't even pronounce Erwin in Spanish. And I said, que papi? Okay, so... Genius, courageous conqueror named Irwin. You know who it is yet? Like I had a moment of angst. I said, su nombre es Erwin. I said, ¿qué? <laughs> he started writing it down. R. Spelling out Irwin. I'd never heard of the name in my whole life. It sounded like a bacteria. And Do you know who it is yet? Famous Genius, courageous conqueror named Irwin. That life is not going to go well for me in Miami. It's a cruel city for Irwins. But I couldn't change my name. I became Irwin because he was studying World War II history and named me after Hitler's general, Irwin Rommel. Your grandfather idolized the Nazis? And named you after Erwin Rommel? Who does that? So I carry the name of the Nazis for the rest of my life. <laughs> and whenever we'd move every two or so years, because we were relocating a lot, we were sort of in our self-created witness protection program. And so we would just move and then move and then move and be in different schools. And my sisters were in four high schools in four years and... I kept thinking I could change my name because it's not my name. It's just an alias. It's not legal. And I, and I, I could be like Joshua or Jeremiah. I like, like those J names. But I, uh, Jason, yeah, that's a good one. Erwin, <laughs> Jason. See, it, it, it doesn't work. And I couldn't change my name. You know why? Every time I tried, because there was one moment in my life, someone looked at me and said, you want to disappear into the backdrop of humanity. You want to be identified by a name that says that you are average and ordinary. You want 
to hide from the world. But my grandfather looked at me and said, no, the name that carries you, the name that you have, the name that you will bear, it has to be a name that says there is genius and brilliance and courage and valor. It needs to be a name of someone who will shape human history and shape human history. Yeah, the Nazis shaped human history all right, but in the worst possible way. Who names their grandson after a famous Nazi general? Again, this, it, this well, it bothers me on a level I'm having a tough time with. None of that was real. And I could never imagine becoming anything like the person my grandfather was describing, but I I couldn't let go of that name because it was the one time in my life someone looked at me and said, there's more in you than you know. There is greatness inside of you, and I will not allow it to be ignored. I'm calling it out of you. And when my grandfather named me Edwin, it was... Now, who's he preaching about? Is he preaching about Jesus? Is he rightly handling a biblical text? Nope. Neither. He's twisted the biblical text, I mean, into a pretzel. Quite an amazing twist at that. And he's not telling us about our sin. He's telling us how wonderfully amazing he is and that he has all this courageous, genius-conquering potential in him, like the famous Nazi General Erwin Rommel. And, uh, and this is supposedly a metaphor for all of our lives because we, like him, are just the same. Wow. As if my soul was awakened to the possibility that my life could actually matter. And I want you to know this morning, that's exactly what God does. No wonder there are so many people in the scriptures that are renamed by God. You see, God looks inside of you and he sees who you are, but he sees who you were created to become. You ever ever notice that God sees you're born dead in trespasses and sins, and God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us, our sins while we were still sinners. The greatest gift and the greatest curse we've ever been given is our imagination. Right? I mean, when humans imagine, humans create. We are materializers of the invisible. We're little deities, apparently. But that can be a curse, too, because you can imagine a person that you're not and feel so tormented that you're not the person you want to be. You can imagine a life you don't have. You can imagine a future that you do not experience and you'll live haunted because you're not living that life you imagine. You imagine a world that doesn't exist. And sometimes we live our lives tormented because our dreams and our imagination so surpass our experience and our reality that we feel as if life has given us a bad turn. But then there are others who realize this imagination, it's a gift from God to us. It's the playground of God where he whispers into our imagination. The playground of God where he whispers into our imagination. Which biblical passage are you getting this from, Erwin? The possibilities of who we can become, the possibilities of the world we can create, the possibilities of the future that can be ushered in if we add courage and passion and determination to these dreams and visions. No wonder the movement of Jesus is known as a movement of dreamers and visionaries, not managers and administrators. Mm-hmm. How is the 
we they will know we are Christians by our dreamers and visionaries. Uh huh. This is weird. Okay, we're dealing with an ideology here that is really historically very dangerous. Because you see, your imagination is God's gift to you, or He begins to whisper into your soul the world you're supposed to create. Because you, the, the world I'm supposed to create. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the... Oh, no, God didn't say any tree. He said, do not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden and do not touch it lest you die. You will not surely die. Because God knows that on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. This is the ideology of the God maker. Who are both a work of art... And an artist at work. See, this is what makes humans different. I've been a part of a community called TED for years. It stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And I've had the great joy and privilege of traveling the world and being a part of these communities. And it's a little intimidating, to be honest with you, because these are like the the world's leading thinkers in their fields. It could be the the field of botany or biology. It could be the world of environmentalism or the world of uh, of, um, humanitarian aid. And and everyone will have like their specialization. Somebody will, will, will study one flower for their entire life. Or not, not bacteria, but one bacteria all their life. They'll follow the movement of, of sharks throughout their entire career. And, and you can feel sort of inadequate there, which I know I do. And the first time I went to TED was in Arusha, Tanzania. And I saw all these people that just looked so powerful. You ever just get around people, you think, I don't belong here. And I thought, but, but maybe I can survive for a while until they know I don't belong here. And, and, and so I saw this woman. She looked really kind. And she was alone. And I thought, she needs a friend. And the best way like, to have a friend is to find someone who needs a friend. And so I, I went to the buffet line and I said, hi, my, my name's Irwin. And she told me her name. And, and I said, are, are you alone? And she said, yes. And I said, would you like to um, grab food and sit together? This is my first TED. She goes, oh, that's wonderful. And, and so we sat down together and we, we began talking about eight other people joined us really quickly. But they never said a word. It was just me and her. And for the next hour, we talked about gorillas. Now, I didn't know a lot about gorillas, so I didn't have a lot to contribute except to ask questions, but she knew so much about gorillas. And I kept thinking to myself, how does a person learn so much about gorillas? I mean, how many years does a person have to give to understand gorillas this way? And after an hour, I looked at her and I said, Jane, can I ask you a question? And she said, yes. I said, are you Jane Goodall? She goes, yes, I am. I said, that explains the gorilla thing. And, and, and every time I had lunch with someone, they were an expert. On some species. And, and what does this have to do with Stephen's great sermon before he was stoned to death? Where he proclaimed Christ? Nothing. This has nothing to do with what Stephen said at all. The only reason he read that text from Acts chapter 7 is so that he can get to that one statement in the NIV and then springboard into it to talk about himself and talk about how wonderful you are. Are you hearing about your sin? Your transgressing of God's law, God's wrath, and Christ taking all of God's wrath upon himself in your place as your substitute on the cross? No, you're not hearing any of that. After about 
10 experiences with Ted, I started thinking to myself, I need a species, right? But I'm kind of, you know, I'm old now and, and I don't have time to become an expert in something new. And then all of a sudden I realized I've spent my entire life studying my favorite species, which are humans. Now, I love studying humans from a distance because they bite up close. And, and, and I've spent the last 35 years studying creativity, specifically human creativity. And I want you to know what makes you different than every other species on this planet, different than any other animal, is that humans imagine and then materialize that imagination. See, there are no antelope out there going, I don't know. I mean, we're all doing the same thing. I, I, I want to be a dancer. You know, or you don't have gazelle going, I want to paint, but I have hooves. What do I do? Such angst. This is the artistic angst. This is why I don't feel like I can achieve my potential because I don't have thumbs. You don't have lions out there going, I know I'm the king of the jungle, but I feel like I'm underachieving. Success is not satisfying to me. They just don't. There has never been an antelope who got up in the morning and said, I'm out. You know this vicious cycle of eating grass, waiting for the roar, running for our lives, leaving someone behind, go to the water hole, drink and act like nothing happened, go to bed, get up, repeat. I'm done being the hunted. I'm not a victim. So you don't have an antelope going, today I am the hunter. We're going lion hunting. We're turning this thing upside down. Who's with me? That would be like a one-day career. You don't have beavers going, another dam. Another dam. That's all we do is dam, dam, dam. We just build dams. I want to build bridges. I don't want to separate. I want to bring people together. I... I, I. I just can't do this anymore. Humans do. See, you wake up every morning and if you pay attention, you start listening to this inner voice that says your life can be more. Your life can be different. What about that voice that says, I'm going to die someday and stand before God and have to give an accounting of my life? What about that voice? Your life can be better. You come to a place like this because you know there is untapped potential within you. How about there's unforgiven sin within me that Christ bled and died for? And some of you, you're living with the angst of your unreached potential. No matter how much you do, no matter what you accomplish, no matter how many people love you and affirm you, there's something inside of you that says you're not living the life you're created to live. And that's a part of the way God has designed you. Because he gives us this gift that we can imagine a world that we are supposed to create. He gives us the gift that he... <laughs> he gives us the a world that we can imagine that we're supposed to create. Which biblical passage teaches this? Not one. Together.
Now, I know what happens. Sometimes you go, yeah, but you don't understand my pain. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the struggles I've had. That's why I love the story of Moses, because Moses was born in a world of incredible pain into a life of tragedy. Moses grew up being the metaphor for God's absence in the world. Every time a Jewish woman saw Moses, she was reminded her son was dead. Every time a Hebrew uh, what? man saw Moses, he was reminded that his son was not spared by God. The Israelites saw Moses as a metaphor of all their loss. Can you imagine the psychological trauma of having your parents send you off in a basket because that's your best chance to survive? And then you get picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the man who wants you dead, who commanded that all your people be annihilated. Can you imagine growing up with that kind of psychological trauma? And then you don't know, am I an Israelite? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We're not dealing with an actual biblical text. We're just imagining stuff now from the biblical story that isn't even in the biblical story. It's because I've been raised by the Egyptians, or am I an Egyptian? Because... I can't be because I was born an Israelite, and so you don't know who you are. And so then he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, and he kills the Egyptian because he thinks that's the way, that's the way God's going to reveal his calling and destiny in his life. Moses is so broken, he thinks killing a man will fulfill God's destiny for his life. And we try to act like what Moses did was right, but it was completely wrong. And he hid the body because he knew it was wrong. And the next day when he was found out, instead of being the man and taking the punishment for his actions, he ran for his life. And now he became a Midianite and pretended he was a shepherd, wandering again among foreigners. And Moses lived his whole life as an outsider, never finding... So he pretended to be a shepherd for 40 years in Midian. 40 whole years of pretending to be a shepherd. Wow. I thought he was a shepherd. His calling, never finding his destiny, never understanding his identity. Until he had that life-changing encounter with God. And see, you too can have your life-changing encounter with God too. You need to stop pretending to be just an ordinary office cubicle worker. And, you know, and, and God's going to have some burning bush encounter with you where you're going to finally achieve and find your destiny. What I want you to know is no matter how broken you may feel, how wounded you may be, no matter how many times you've failed, no matter how many times you've given up, No matter how many voices have told you that you will never amount to anything, that it's time to hear the one voice that knows you. The one voice who sees underneath all the rubble of your life and And says, repent and be forgiven. Christ died for your sins. Sees the God-given potential waiting to be awakened. It's time that we take the scriptures away from those who turned it into a manuscript for conformity and compl- Yeah, that would be guys like me, apparently. And we'd return it to a manifesto of creativity and freedom. It's t- uh, where, how do you get this idea that the Bible is a manifesto of creativity and freedom? Huh? Oh, yeah, you were very creative. T- took all kinds of free liberties with the biblical text that you twisted, but you didn't tell us the truth about what it said. That those of us who have been transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ to stand up and say, don't you understand? You are created in the image of God. You are imagined in the imagination of God and you've been given the same gift to imagine a world that does not exist. You are created to create. You are designed by God to be his instrument to create all that is good and beautiful and true. You are. You were designed by God to create all that is beautiful and true. That's a lie from the devil. That is a flat-out lie. You're born dead in trespasses and sins. 
Where is he getting this from? Work of art. Now, maybe you're a work of art in process. This is the epitome of a scratching ears kind of sermon from those who've wandered off from the truth. And and some of us are so broken, we look more like Picasso's. Is that, are you sure that's where the eye goes? And you go, well, it's not the way we started, but it's better than the beginning. So you're not only a work of art, but you are an artist at work. And you are the instrument through which God creates the world he imagines. You are the instrument that God creates the world that he imagines. Where are you getting this demonic doctrine from? It's not found in the Bible. You are the instrument to which God creates what is beautiful and good and true. I thought that's all being done by Christ, not me. It's time for you to not simply be the canvas, but to take up your brush and start adding color to a world lost in gray. It's time for you to embrace your artisan soul. Father, I think... I'm not letting him pray for us. Wow. One of the worst, most seductive, demented sermons I've heard in a long time. And he delivered it masterfully. None of it was true. Took our eyes completely off of Christ. Stephen's eyes were not on himself and his artisan's soul. His eyes were on Jesus as they stoned him. And he gave up his life and even prayed, don't hold this sin against them. Because he had been forgiven, he forgave even those who were murdering him falsely. That's a very different message than what we just heard from Erwin McManus. What did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.